This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. Welcome to the Earth Regenerators Radio Hour. I'm Alpha Lowe, and today I'm here with Iris Nicoman and Trisha Stapleton. They work in the Osa Peninsula in Costa Rica. Do you guys want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Trisha Stapleton. As Alpha said, we're here um, on the Osa Peninsula in particular. We are on the southwest tip um, facing the Gulf of Dulce. And um, here on the Osa, we are present among 2.5% of the Earth's biodiversity and have been working on community and regeneration solutions for the community um, for a number of years now. And uh, my name is Iris Nekeman. Um, I'm currently from, um, well, originally from Holland, uh, currently living in the Osa Peninsula uh, and working together with Trisha on different projects here in service to the community. Uh, besides just feeling very blessed to be in this beautiful, beautiful um, surround, yeah, in this beautiful, beautiful surroundings, uh, I am uh, very, very privileged to be learning from Trisha and uh, how to really put ourselves in service to um, what we are here to do in our lives. So do you want to just describe a little bit more of the situation in the Osa Peninsula here and uh, like what, uh, what are some of the needs and, and problems and issues around both the social and the ecological um, aspects? So, um, yeah, the, the Osa is a very um, interesting place in that it is a peninsula, so and it's really at the southern tip of the country, and so it's been um, pretty much isolated and very difficult to get to for a very long time. It's only actually in the early 1980s that it even became accessible with a road coming through. And so while there has been um, a history of... Um, people coming in, a history, we have a history of banana republics, we have a history of extraction, we have um, some older history, but it's really just since the 1980s that there has been any level of kind of um, population moving in. And so the, the OSA has an incredible level of, um, of abundance, um, abundance, obviously, of, of nature. Um, it also has an abundance of a level of community um, interdependence and coherence. But 
since the 1980s, that has also been broken up quite a bit with um, a much much more of an emphasis on bringing in uh, tourism as an economic driving force and really creating a situation of economic stratification within this area where you have um, pockets of extreme affluence among mostly foreign um, expatriates or immigrants really coming into this area. But then you also have extreme poverty and extreme um, financial lack among the local population here on the Osa, who are really the people who are the stewards of the land that represent this great level of biodiversity. So that's kind of just a very broad view, overview of um, of the primary challenge in this area. Okay, mm-hmm. thanks. And do you want to share some thoughts around the eco-social situation here? Um, yeah, coming from a, a very westernized culture and way of living with each other. Um, and where do you come from? I uh, I grew up in uh, the center, like the middle of the Netherlands, in a little town, and then I moved to Amsterdam um, and uh, lived there for ten years. And coming here, I was just um, more and more coming to the realization how disconnected we are, which means that I could only experience that actually by seeing how connected the people in the local community and especially the Ticos uh, among each other. Uh, so the Ticos are, are the local Costa yeah, Ricans here. And how much they love the place and um, unconditionally, like many, many Ticos, they, they really sense that they want to take care of the place. Um, and um, yeah, just that, that level of, of care for each other and for for. Yeah, the Osa and, and every single being that is here um, just um, a point, yeah, points out for me how, how much we have diverted in that um, since I didn't really experience that in Amsterdam. Uh, um, Trisha, do you want to speak a, a bit into what's happening ecologically here in the Osa? Well... Um, sure, I can do that. It's it's interesting because um, 80% of this peninsula is actually protected. So it's either national park or it's what's called the a forest reserve. Um, and so you have um, you have lots of forests, lots of waterways, lots of the the natural um, environment that is protected. In addition to that, you have a lot of conservation efforts that are going forward um, in pockets that aren't part of that mix that are focused on the ecological preservation of this place. What's interesting within all of that, though, is that um, is that these efforts are not focused within the areas that people are residing and as I said earlier, the, the people who live here, the local population, have um, economic challenges that they face. And as a result of that, they, they're engaging in practices that have been, um, that, that are extractive and harmful 
to the land, things like commodity agriculture, um, specifically around palm oil plantations and around um, rice production. The cattle farming, there's a lot of cattle farming going on here, but it's not being done in a sustainable or regenerative way. There's also extraction taking place continued around like gold mining or poaching of animals or poaching of precious woods. But once again, most of this is being driven because of financial need. And so just going briefly into why we set up the Rosa Collective to begin with, it was to really acknowledge that the people of this place, given the opportunity, would want to not just preserve this place, but also to regenerate those areas that have been degraded, but based on their economic day-to-day needs of being able to pay their monthly bills and put food on the table, and the fact that they, they've basically been brought into this system of, um, of really neoliberal capitalism by the institutions that are set up to help them, then they're really in a place where they don't have any option but to continue with these types of practices. But when we can begin to bring in opportunities that are regenerative in nature and make those opportunities available both on a technical scale but also on a way where a family, a farmer, a landholder can support themselves, then you really can begin to evoke and implement the types of dreams that bring the people once again into harmony with the land that they're living on. Cool, thanks. Do you want to share some uh, of what you've observed around the ecological and regenerative aspects going on in Osa? Um, for me, I just, I mean, I have only been living here for a year, right? So I, <laughs> um, I've just been here for a short amount of time, basically. Uh, yet I've talked to a lot of people because of what we're doing, which is like really nice. And what I mainly hear uh, or heard is there is um, some form of um, separation taking place somehow um, in the way we look at how to regenerate places. Um, And there are various perspectives um, that really promote the conservation um, aspects of of the biodiversity. And um, then there are a couple of, in like, actually many, many um, local people who are considering themselves still a part of nature because they don't know any other thing than just being in this place with this amount of yeah you know w- within this amount of biodiversity basically um, which simply makes you a part of it um, without even realizing because we're in the minority here as humans um, but the local people they, without necessarily mentioning the word regeneration, they, they talk about regeneration. Like, they talk a lot around how to regenerate the place with the people in it. Um, 
So there are like two perspectives going on around this the ecological, um, yeah, the ecological, the topic of ecology here, let's say it like that, and biodiversity. Um, uh, whereas the conserva- people who are f- talking more about conservation are more around uh, focusing on keeping the land and not necessarily the people in it. So there's a tension going on there. That's what I what I hear at least. With and the conservation are more NGOs, right? And the regeneration is more the. There are also pri- uh, people like private. Um, uh, private investors mm. who are um, investing here in land in order to conserve it. Um, so that's a tension going on there, and that's what I see around the ecological, the topic around, uh, of ecology. Um, yeah, and that's, I think, what I want to share. Uh, and um, the importance of the, those, those two perspectives to come together at some point, which is where the Regenerosa... In, in one way, um, really, we should take is, is yeah, weaving a, a tapestry for. Um, yeah, I think that's my contribution. Cool, thanks. Um, do you want to describe what uh, Rihenerosa is and how it, or how the idea birthed, or how it came into being, and what it is? Well, you know, it's really interesting that we're sitting here for the Earth Regenerators podcast because the idea of Regenerosa really birthed um, within the framework of Earth Regenerators. Um, So I have been involved in Earth Regenerators for about a year and a half now. And I originally got involved in Earth Regenerators because I was sitting here, um, you know, literally at the end of the road Um, trying to do work and not really knowing what I was doing, but just knowing that, okay, we just had a global pandemic that hit. We now have an economy that's 80% based on tourism, which means we have no economy anymore. And the people here are really suffering and there doesn't seem to be any help that's coming in. And I had always remembered about that um, Chinese character that where the the same word that um, is like obstacle or crisis is also opportunity. And I saw how that was the case here where, okay, we're being shown that we're actually just dependent on one another. And how can we use this opportunity to really focus on relocalization, to really focus on taking back um, our rights and our responsibilities to organize with one another and to create the types of things that we want to create here together. And so I had been working um, with the community with a a small core group of of people here that happen to be foreigners and local campesinos and, and local ticos that were from other parts of the country. And we had this sweet little group of people that were working together to do mutual aid work. So during the early days of the pandemic, um, I was collaborating with a a small group of other people that were interested in kind of um, working within mutual aid and, and just kind of supporting our local community and our local economy. And it was beautiful because it was a mix of 
uh, foreigners as well as um, Ticos. Ticos are the Costa Rican, that's, that's the local name, um, Tico. And there were Ticos that had moved here from other parts of the country. And then there were also local campesinos involved. And the local campesinos are basically the local people of the land, so the local rural people. Um, and so we were, we were working together to, um, to do different projects that were of mutual aid, um, projects like Manos Cambiadas and Caja Verde, and then starting a, a market. Um, Can you just explain what those terms are? Yeah, absolutely. So Manos Cambiadas was, a, was the first program that we started, actually. And that's similar to like a crop mob or barn raising. Um, it actually dates back a long time here in this country. Um, it's called different things in Latin America and Colombia. I think they call it a minga. Um, in many traditional cultures, rural communities, they have these types of things because very often on farms, you might have something coming up that's very labor intensive and you don't have the, the hands that you need within your household to do that work. And so you call in your neighbors to help you. And then they come in and, and then you go and you help them. And so it's just this virtuous cycle of mutual aid, of being able to work together to get a, a need met. So we started with that program and we were doing that once a week. We would go out to a different farm in Nij. Our first farm we, um, we just found because we were dropping off weekly food boxes because at that time we had an emergency food distribution program based on the fact that our economy had just basically collapsed. And our, um, one of the boxes that we dropped off was to a local farmer. And I got really struck because I had been uh, in relationship with this farmer for like 15 years prior when we, when we had sold at a farmer's market together. And I remember thinking, why is Don Juan not able to feed himself and his family as a farmer? It really struck me that like this most essential of work of like bringing food to people that you're not able to support yourself and that you need an emergency food box. And so he was our first farm that we went to. And we, we went and we went to help to clear his land so that he could plant it out for the upcoming season. And then each week after that, we went to a different farm little by little. Farmers started contacting us. Hey, can you come here? Or they came into the Manos Cambiadas and then we went to their farm. And it was just this lovely community building experience of like working, sharing a potluck lunch together, then having a plant and seed exchange at the end, and then everybody just going home. From there, what we realized was that this was great and everybody needed some income coming into the household too. But um, none of these farmers were producing in such a way that they had a commodity item that they could sell on the open market. They were all pretty much diversified family farms, subsistence farms, but they did have extra produce that if they had a way of getting it out to consumers could bring a little bit of income into their household. And I had been a foodie for some time and I remembered learning about um, CSA boxes or community supported agriculture. 
And so I thought, well, actually, with little bits from different farms, we could actually do some CSA boxes. And then I also knew that out here in the Matapalo area, where there was more affluence and where the people's household economy was not just based on tourism, that we could find people who would be interested and willing to buy the boxes. And so we mar married the, cons the consumers or the subscribers for the boxes with the producers that were producing little bits of this and that. And each week we would go around to the different farms, collect up what they had grown, bring it to Higarones in town and make these boxes and then get it out to consumers. So it was a real community effort. Um, but what I also recognize is in focusing so much of, on that, we had um, lost the ability to look at the bigger picture, like to look upstream at what the challenges were. So not just like being able to help to bring in a little bit of income into these households on a weekly basis, but what were the real structural issues that are keeping these households in poverty to begin with? And the real structural issues are that there is this stratification in income and that there is not an equitable, diverse, an equitable distribution of financial resources. But then also this is in a place where, is there, where there is so many resources nature-wise. And so I came into Earth Regenerators kind of with this, um, this challenge, this predicament that I felt like I was in, that I was kind of stuck in this predicament of like, okay, we're, we're, we're providing this necessary support for these households, but at the same time, we're just kind of treating the wound and we're not looking at where the shots are coming from. And so um, when I came into Earth Regenerators uh, at the Project Incubator, there were a number of members within that call that then reached out to me and said, we want to help. And that was huge because it was like a lifeline, you know, that, um, that made me feel like, okay, I'm not alone down here. Um, while I was working with people here on the ground, we, it's a very sparsely populated area. Um, there's not a lot of population. A lot of people are just kind of meeting their, their emergency needs. And so there isn't actually all that much opportunity to collaborate because people are, are, are very full or very busy. And then here was this group of people who had certain skills that were willing to put them in service to, um, to the OSA. And so through meeting with the Earth Regenerators, um, this idea of Regenerosa was born. And basically the idea of Regenerosa is to liberate financial capital and other value flows from the stranglehold that they're caught in of financial markets and impersonal investments and carbon offsets and all of this kind of like market-based force and instead invite it into investing and contributing into communities that are actually supporting, protecting, and regenerating 2.5% of the Earth's biodiversity. And so that in 
a nutshell is what Rihena Rosa is. It's, it's a bringing together of resources from outside of the Osa Peninsula that are needed within the Osa Peninsula and bringing together the, the projects, the people, and the processes within the Osa Peninsula that can come together and collaborate to begin to have a real focus on regenerating the lands and regenerating the social structures here that have been damaged through neoliberal policies over the last 60 years. Cool, thank you. Do you want to say um, about your involvement in uh, Regenerosa, Gittes? And what, what you see in Regenerosa can do to the community and the land? Yeah, of course. Um, I'll start with what Regenerosa can do for the community and the land, if that's okay. Because um, to, to kind of um, build on what Trisha is saying is what, Rege- like, what Regenerosa creates for the community and the land is, is the, the connection. It's um, basically connecting different people across the whole, the whole peninsula to, um, in a way, in their own ways, to what extent they can, uh, collaborate with one another to, uh, to create this more regenerative society here in the Osa Peninsula. Um, and what does that do for the land is, is basically uh, creating some kind of, I, I, I almost see it like compost. The connections that are built here, they are kind of like the compost that will fuel the soil at some, you know, in, in actually providing its people and its all, all its beings um, and habitants with what they need. Um, so I, for me, Regenerosa, just um, on, on, on this level in the Osa Peninsula, can, yeah, it just generates a huge impact. I've been seeing it over the last year that I've been involved now. Um, the ties that have been uh, connected between people, between projects, uh, the insights that have, that, that have expanded within like, the perspectives of individuals already. Like, wow, um, that's, it's, it's really, really um, uh, mesmerizing to see what, it, what, it, what happens when we get people together in a room here. Um, and mainly my involvement over the last year um, came simply from being here through Workaway as a volunteer for Los Igaronas, the community hub and, and project incubator in, in Puerto Jimenez. Um, and over that time, uh, I, I got to know more about the Regenerosa, uh, working with Trish, and um, the, the idea of creating some kind of system here that connects the, the people that are living here and also connects the people that love this place but are not living here or, feel, or um, in, in, in any way that they, they love it. Um, some people have, even, have never even visited it. And um, they, they just 
they just they're just in love with the osa um, so creating that connection too between the people that love the place and want to contribute in in preserving and enriching the amount of abundance um, that that lives here um, yeah that's um, that's something really beautiful and um, made me stay at some point when I when I was about to get on a plane back to the Netherlands um, just uh, the belief in in that this 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 connection can truly happen even though you you're not in the place even though um, you might just have the slightest idea of what this amount of biodiversity could look like but just believe that you want to contribute to it um, being able to connect that and put the contribution that people want to do and are able to give into the soil here into the, and put it into the community here um, that's something um, that I couldn't imagine doing any other thing anymore Um, and my particular involvement has been to to work out which kind of back-end organizational structures would work, um, you know, making flyers. It, it ranges from making flyers to um, thinking about the stories that we want to share or uh, working with digital volunteers that, um, that want to put themselves in service too um, and actually through the digital realm um, a lot of co-sense making with Trisha uh, it's it's um, a whole it's basically the setup of a whole organization because the thing for me is the, the most important thing for me within this whole process is that the person or that the people that are need to connect are uh, able to connect and Trish is one of those people Trish um, has been one of the um, let's say it like that is um, yeah Trish in any form of network that is, is here in the OSA um, you're just really good in, in creating those ties And I just believe that everyone should put themselves in the position that they're uh, able to give what they're gifted with. Um, and uh, that other people should hold that space for those people to connect with each other who need to connect. So basically, that's what I'm doing in, with my involvement. It's just um, being part of facilitating the space for Trish and all the other elders and beautiful people here in the OSA that have been here for, for a long time already and need to connect in order to amplify the impact of, of Regenerosa. So in the OSA Peninsula, there's a lot of different organizations and groups doing multiple things like the sea turtles and the coral reefs and um, and then there's projects people working on with the local farmers um, and there's always 
magic and and things that emerge as people get networked and connect with each other. And I think you guys were telling me some stories about what happens when different parts of the system connect with each other. Do you want to share some of those stories? Yeah, there is a lot of magic when these different parts of the system can kind of um, begin to interact and begin to know one another. Um, I know that for myself over the last three years, as I've been, as I've, as I've been interacting and really becoming much more immersed um, in getting outside of my own comfort zone, getting outside of my own zone of um, knowledge and how I normally move and who I normally move with, my life has been enriched tremendously. And um, there's so many examples of that, but just one where I now have a woman who's in my life, who's been in my life since the beginning of May in, in 2020, who I had known for many years, you know, seen her around town and, and briefly interacted with her, um, who really couldn't be more different than me. Somebody who actually was born here on the OSA, grew up in the National Park, um, got to maybe um, a very a very preliminary level of education before she had to drop out and um, was a mother at 14, just very different life circumstances than my own. And, but we've connected to such a level that we formed a very, very deep bond and we complement one another in such beautiful ways. And so she can help to educate and inform me about what it is really like to be of this place and to know this place on such an intimate level, to know the, the different species, in not in this scientific way, but just in this way of being in relation and how you're in relation with the jungle and how you're in relation with, um, with the greater than human world. And then I'm able to bring in my experience and, and, and my knowledge from, you know, from doing public policy work and looking at systems and, and how we shift systems and, and how we complement um, what's already going on. And so we, we were able to definitely create a situation where the sum of the, where the total is greater than the sum of the parts of that there's some kind of saying where what we're bringing forward together is way more than either of us could bring a could bring forward on our own and we're able to begin to recognize and to demonstrate that even though we come from very different life experiences fundamentally we are all the same and we all like love and we all want the best for ourselves and for our families and for the place that we live in and um and we're able to know these things by just building those relationships in a very um considerate and meaningful way and then there's also ways that not just the particular people but also where the ways that we interact with systems are able to be affected. So for instance, because we had been doing this Manos Cambiadas program, and then I was in relationship with a woman who runs our local 
Coral Restoration Project. And they have known within the coral restoration field for a long time that um, that the runoff that's occurring from the palm oil plantations and from the rice cultivation is severely impacting the coral reefs. And we got to talking about Manos Cambiadas and how we structured the program and what that looked like. And as a result of that, they started a spin-off to their coral restoration that's working with these larger plantation farms to help them to mitigate their runoff before it goes into the quebradas and the rivers that are by their fields, thus offsetting the amount of chemicals that are heading out into the Gulf of Dulce and thus destroying the, 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 um, the coral reefs. So, um, Tricia, you guys have run a work exchange program here too. And uh, do you want to say a little bit about that, like the intention behind it and what happens to the participants and also the multi-capital approach that you try to teach people? Yeah, sure. So um, we are here in a rural area um, with kind of a low population density and um, also not all that much of a history around like volunteerism there's definitely like a lot of communitarian, you know, spirit, but um, but people don't generally like go out and volunteer. Um, but there's a lot of things around here that need voluntary support. And so one of the things, because we live in such a magical place and so many travelers around the world want to come to a place like this, um, I've worked for a number of years with work traders um, in different capacities. And after um, COVID kind of settled down enough where people started traveling again, probably like nine to 11 months after COVID started, um, we opened back up our, our work trade experience. And we do that through a platform called WorkAway, um, which matches people who are looking to travel and trade with hosts. And so since that time, I don't actually know how many work traders we've had come through, probably about, I would say about 60 I've had come through. We normally do a minimum of a month because we found um, that it takes a while for people to get acclimated. Because what we're finding is, especially with the work traders who are coming from like the States or from Europe, or really anywhere in the global north, it's so much about helping to facilitate their entry into a much simpler and much more basic and much more kind of calculated way of living. So like here on site, we mostly, mostly work with um, Whole Foods, which is really funny as we sit here with this pizza box next to us from, uh, from dinner, but we're mostly working with Whole Foods. You know, we, we spend a lot of time on making meals and that's what a lot of the work traders, um, they comment on quite often. They're like, we spend so much time on food. And it's like, yeah, because it takes a lot of time to work with Whole Foods. And, um, and we find that a lot of people are not accustomed to eating like a Whole Foods diet to not working with um, ingredients from scratch and making something 
luscious for the eyes, for the mouth and, and for the body. And so part of what we're doing with the work trade is like, yes, we have this exchange, right? Where people give us 15 hours a week, we give them a place to stay. But what it's really about is helping people to break out of this story and really this paradigm of our industrialized way of living and bring them into a much more basic, much more communal and much more hearty way of living. So, um, yeah, that's what we do with the program. Okay, cool. Um, and Inez, you came in through this program. Uh, do you want to say a bit about your experience with this? Yeah, it was funny because I only arrived here for 10 days. Um, <laughs> and that was... Uh, from uh, from Denmark? From Holland. Holland, sorry. Holland. Let's get those two. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> people, people confuse me a lot with Denmark, so it's fine. Um, but yeah, I only... Initially, I came in for 10 days last year in February. And uh, yeah, I'm still here. 2023, March, the end, towards the end. Um, no, I came in for about a week. And um, just to actually, well, we, I, was, I was traveling and I was working online. And at the same time, um, yeah, me and my friends, were, we were just tired of, you know, spending a lot of money on traveling. And we felt like we could contribute something more because we had studied sustainability. So we were like, yeah, you know, those skills are always needed somewhere. And somehow we landed here at Higaronis. Um just... Well, creating the website and the story around Higaronis and putting that up online. And um, Trish was already, well... Higaronis, I just want to remind people, it's the community center that they have um, where they run a lot of events and the farmer's market out of. Yeah, and Higaronis is also some kind of project incubator. incubator, Mm. Because what I actually came back for in in the month uh, that I, I decided to stay um, longer than the 10 days uh, was that I started working on setting up or like co-creating because everything that happens here is in co-creation and co-creating uh, an ordering system for the local products from the market. And um, by experiencing working from just basically in the gifts um, and, and just, you know, unconditionally volunteer and voluntarily spending my time on on that project already opened up so much in my life i was like wow you know like just seeing and engaging with um the way that people on the market but also like trisha was you know like looking at life um it was so enriching and op- and and opening for my own mind because in the past i only related uh, doing work to earning money and getting money for the work that I do. And throughout the time that I was there already in the first month, I started seeing, whoa, there are so many different ways to, to trade with one another, you know, like it really opened up that system of, oh, we can actually provide each other with, with what we need in so many different ways than, than just paying for it and just spending money on it. So it kind of liberated my idea around money already. And then... So when you came in, like you you said you had an idea that you 
everything you did, you're supposed to get money for. Is that right? Like that was kind of your paradigm that you. Yeah, I came from the very um, modernized mindset of you work 40 hours a week against a salary and um, in return, the company that you work for gets to say what you're doing, basically. Mm. Um, and of course, you applied for a role, but there are always things that you they don't like. There are always things that you don't want to do and were part of it. But yeah, it was really like, OK, you only work for money. And if you don't work for money, then you do that as volunteering work besides your actual job, because mm. volunteering work is not actual job. So that was basically how I came in with that idea. Right. And then, as I understand it, Trisha tries to teach this multi-capital framework that there's like that money is not the only way to do economics, right? There's also the gift and the barter and the exchange and stuff. Yeah. So basically what happened after that second, like after that real first month here working on basically everything with regards to what was needed for Los Higuerones. Um, I got more and more introduced to the Regenerosa uh, and what Trish was setting up there um, with the local people here. Um, and she needed help with, you know, like creating the documentation and all the things around the backend structures and organizational structures. And in that period, um, she started, she found something around the eight forms of capital and we started working with the eight forms of capital. And <clears throat> thinking in that way, you know, uh, around, okay, I might invest uh, a dollar in a pineapple, but let's see how that actually comes back to me in so many different ways, indirectly too. Um, the eight forms of capital, I think, is something like there's like community capital, there's... Uh... The eight forms of capital are financial capital, social capital, uh, spiritual capital, natural capital, material capital. Um, Intellectual inter capital. Experiential capital. And then the last one, I'm always... Cultural capital. Cultural capital. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. And we're in the dominant paradigm, we're kind of trained just to think about the financial monetary capital and we've kind of forgotten some of these other capitals well and also what what we've been finding through working with the multiple capitals is that we're also trained to think about the intellectual capital as being a primacy mm. say over experiential capital right so even though we don't think about it in the, its capital form the way that we value intellectual capital in relation to experiential capital, we we start to see how um, economic inequity is really perpetuated. Mm -hmm. cool. And the same actually accounted for like the social capital and the spiritual capital. Because from my background in social science, I I learned actually a lot around human capital. And instead of human resource, we moved to human capital already. So you know that transition is happening, and yet. What really, what really, um, you know, liberated me basically from only considering money as some kind of way to do transactions. Um, it liberated once one my creativity because you know, like, it's actually fun to think in all these type of ways that you can can exchange with one another. And the second one was that. I started to uh, experience spiritual capital in a totally different way. 
Because in order to move from a system in which you are only paid to do work to completely like you know like working as a volunteer, which is a different is is basically just in the gift economy. Um, yeah, I just experienced so much more connection to people. I experienced so much more. Um, connection to the place that I was simply because I was doing what I believed was really good to do for the people and the place that I was with and um, it actually has led to the point that I I'm not even thinking about asking a, a particular price for for something that I would do if someone would ask me to help them out as a work related thing uh, so it 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 kind of liber yeah it just helped me transition completely into the gift economy that yes is very much facilitated by the container that was here and also through the ER network that was being held for me to actually you know like keep trusting that everything will be alright and still keep trusting that everything will be alright and that you will be provided for mm. um, and helping me to build up that, that strength in order to at some you know like some point have the the way have figured out the ways uh, with people that fuel just the work that I do uh, because they believe it's it's good what I'm doing um, in the ways that they can and meet meet each other there where we can meet each other mm. where we have space for it yeah so so there's this kind of work exchange where the the, the volunteers coming in kind of learn to shift a little bit from this um, dominant, you know, capitalist model to this kind of multi-capital framework. And there's also this, um, the work, ex uh, the work parties, you know, the kind of manos cambiados uh, here in the, so that involves a lot of the locals. And so, and so sometimes uh, the volunteers also can sort of bridge into that. So there's also that happening, right? Do you want to say a little bit about how that works where these, some of these travelers from other countries are now integrating and working in these local um, kind of volunteer circles, manos cambiatos. Well, it's interesting, yeah, because when we when we look at that too, it's really kind of a stark. Um, it, it's where we see starkly, and I think where many of us um, who come from a, a Western framework really see how intellectual capital is honored over experiential capital. Because when you're going into a manos cambiadas, it's all about experiential. And those of us who have our degrees or we have our backgrounds and what, what, whatever we have, and then we're going out there and we're trying to harvest rice, you know, and we can't quite swing the machete in the right way, you know, or we're having to like thresh the rice from, from the from the stock and we can't quite get the technique, you know, and then you're working out there alongside a campesino who's been doing it their whole life and they have this style to it, you know, and they can do like 10 times as much as you could do in the same amount of time, but do it effortlessly. And you're like there and you're sweating and you're just like feeling like really incompetent and it's humbling, but it's humbling in the most beautiful way. You know, because you're doing something real. You're doing something that ultimately is going to lead to like food on your table. And you're doing something that's ultimately going to lead to you having 
had this encounter with someone who you might not have known. Actually, you probably didn't know before you went to their farm. But then there was a, a total reciprocity that occurred, right? You went out there with the intention to help. And then you left with the understanding of what you gained. So it's, yeah, in some ways it's a, it's a um, the, the manos cambiadas and the way that people who experience them for the first time, how they're changed and how their perspective on quote unquote volunteering is changed is, I've seen it to be very, very profound. Mm. It's, uh, it, it has been one of the most profound ways of humbling myself, actually, and learning what, it, what, li- what, what life can be like with very, very, very basic resources, according to, to how I've been raised, right? Because for them, it's, the, it's an insane amount of richness. Um, I remember talking to Ada, for example, during one of our Manos Combiadas is when we built the house um, for their, their Palmito farm. And um, she told me that we make everything so dif- difficult with our minds. Um, whereas the greatest abundance is kind of found in the, in the, mo- in, in the easiest ways. Um, if you just look around. And I was like... Yeah, those are some wise words. And if I then go back to all the experiences that I had with the Manos Cambiadas, starting as not necessarily knowing how to farm or build a house here in the jungle, like in this environment. Um, yeah, I just shared with you too. And, you know, uh, that I that I would actually be, I don't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be my choice to do it. But if it comes down to it, I would be actually quite all right. How, how physically did it feel to do some of that stuff for you? Oh, gosh. You know, like I was digging holes for an hour and then you, you, you dig four holes of 30 centimeters deep and you're sweating like a pig within three minutes already. And just, you know, like breathing through and breathing through. It was it was actually really, really, really hard. Mm. Um, and the first two times... Uh, yeah, I I was just out there and I needed a break after 20 minutes mm. F- and then a break for like 10 minutes, drink a coconut and, you know, like Don Lucas just being in there in the sun for like one and a half hours smiling and, you know, like digging the holes or doing things and I'm like, oh my goodness, you guys are so, so, yeah, you get a lot of respect for the people that are providing us with the food. Yeah. that we are blessed enough to, to eat here. Yeah, I think there's something important about actually physically somewhat connecting to like the way we build our houses and the way we kind of make our food. And you were saying earlier, Trisha, that you spend so much time with your food, right? But I do think it's actually kind of important that because these are our basic experiences, living and eating, right? And um, and Charles was saying, Charles Eisenstein was saying that um, that uh, we actually have enough food right now to feed all the people, but we actually have to transition from the um, the industrial agriculture approach to the permaculture approach. But the permaculture approach, because it, it yields actually a lot more food per acre, um, and 
and, and because it's also much better for the environment. But in order to transition to that, we actually have to spend much more time in the garden because it's a lot, permaculture is a lot about observing this and that and like making changes as you observe. It's a kind of more experiential experience. And, uh, and we've kind of farmed out, oh, that's not the right word, <laughs> or maybe it is the right word, farmed out our farming to like these machines and these mass you know, uh, corporations. And that's quite a problematic because we're now out of touch with our food. And it's also creating these pesticides and these runoffs. And, uh, you know, and it's actually a large, you know, a, it's a cause of climate change. Um, so, and also our houses too, with the more toxic materials and the more, and the more insulated we become from the real world. So if we actually kind of get into that process of building our houses, it, it kind of reconnects us and actually makes it more aware why we need to use natural materials. Like why we might want to build out of bamboo or cob instead of like more and more processed. You know, we have more and more processed foods, we also more and more processed housing. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's interesting too here when we when we talk about food, like when when I first started working in the space, which was a little under three years ago, there were the two large higadon trees in the yard and that was the only living things that were existent here in this yard and now on any given day i can go out there and i can harvest i can harvest herbs for tea i can harvest all the greens i need to make like a beautiful salad or a beautiful sauteed green dish or greens for my smoothies um i mean i can i can always find something in the garden to put into my food to put into my body and it took a bit of work to first get things going but now it really doesn't take effort. It's just a relationship, mm. right? So it's like, oh, I rake the leaves that fall from the higadon tree. And then I add those leaves into the beds. And then those leaves break down and they nurture the plants. And so it's no longer work. It's like, like when you when you're going to visit a friend and you spend like 15 minutes in the morning just checking in like how's it going you know and it's the same thing it's like break up the leaves put them in the bed how you doing you know and um and yeah like what's more natural than that right than than living in that way mm -hmm. and it's kind of like localizing everything too because like you're getting your food sources and your herbs and the mulch and like there's there's multiple things you're getting from the tree and it, it's it i think we need to make that transition from like everything coming in through the supermarkets like to actually relocalizing and so to recognize and it's kind of like you have to recognize how a lot of stuff is around you and maybe it takes a bit more effort but that effort it's the same with the like the gardening like you we need more time in that and that's not necessarily a bad thing we don't necessarily yeah so I think there's an illusion of efficiency that kind of gets us away from the track of where we want to go. But we actually do need to spend more time with the tree and the plants to get that stuff to, to you know, for food or whatever. And um, because it kind of relocalizes ourselves and we, we need a kind of mass relocalization movement around the world of people doing this. And, um, 
and it's not always obvious through all the economic equations and everything, but it, I think it is really important. Yeah, it's usually important. And it's one of the things that, you know, when we, going back to having work traders, when, when you're living with others, you can begin to point those things out. Like I remember for the first couple of months, you know, Iris would come back to, to Higaroni sometimes and she'd be bringing in some kale or some green, you know, like spinach greens or whatever, because like these are the greens that we know, you know, and I'm like, oh, no, no, Iris, like, why are we buying that? Look, we've got this katuk and we've got this chaya and we've got this other spinach and these are like just as good. We have to like refine our taste to them. But shouldn't we be refining our taste to like what is readily available around us, right? Mm. Like how, and that was one of the things that, that COVID definitely shifted me into because once we started our Caja Verde, once we started our CSA boxes, then I'm, I'm committed to buying a box a week, right? So now my whole diet has become local, mm. right? Because I've committed to buying all my produce here locally. So I've shifted away from any of the potatoes or, or the other, you know, tubers that don't grow here and I'm eating my yuca and sometimes I'm getting camote and then, you know, the platanos are always there and what do I do with them? And then heart of palm, which is like this delicacy and other play, most places in the world, you know, and I'm getting that each week. But, you know, after like, 10 weeks of eating heart of palm, you have to start getting really creative, but you just begin to adapt your tastes. And I, I think that's what it is. It's like, it's part of it is the, the story that we're telling ourselves, you know, of mm. like, maybe we're telling ourselves a story of deprivation, but we could just as easily be switching that around to the story of abundance, you know, and the story of privilege of, oh my God. I have so much food around me all the time. And this is beautiful that I can like sit down to a meal and know where everything has come from. Mm. And for that, me, oh, there's a, well, there's a big thing in there for me. I mean, we're talking a lot around our relationship with nature and um, that's, that's really interesting because one of the biggest lessons that I got here too was how do you live with those that you don't necessarily choose to live with in the first place? Um, <laughs> I mean, if I look at all the people that come here on the farmer's market, on set, like the, the people I interact with the most are basically none of all those people that I would ever have chosen in my entire life to, to in, engage with on like a daily basis or um yeah weekly basis and have such deep connection with i mean um <clears throat> even though you don't even have like a complete even though if you have a language barrier um you know it's just it's it's how do we mend our relationship with nature but it's also how do we mend that relationship with ourselves because i uh, i was always taught like you you better have a very like good relationship with your neighbor than with a far friend because you neighbor you really need as soon as something shit is shit if something is up um, and that's something that i've been learning here too is there is this beautiful thing here um which you know really motivates me to work on the regenerosa actually because what you see here is that people really still live in community with one another although the ties might not 
be as strong as we would like to see them, they are there and they are really supportive of one another. Like the farmer's market is one of the biggest examples that producers at the end of the day, they start supporting each other by exchanging the products. And that's actually one of the biggest exchanges that happens throughout the day that they just, yeah, that's how they mainly get rid of their products at the end because it's not necessary that there are so much customers at this point in time. It's just, they are finding ways with each other to, you know, like um, provide each other in what they need and themselves in the end in what they need. So I really, uh, besides our relationship with nature and focusing on how do we get our hands back in the soil again, right? And our feet back in the soil and how do we uh, learn the things that we, we tell ourselves we have forgotten. Um, yeah, how do we actually live with like the, our fellow human beings that have different stories? Because it's the easiest thing to, for me, it's the easiest thing that when I'm in a conflict with someone, I go sit in the tree. Because, you know, the tree always provides me with, with the sanctuary that I need. Because it's simply, it, it simply is. Um, the tree just doesn't know anything else than just to be. But how do I be with that other person that I'm actually in a conflict with? And what if that person is my neighbor? You know, like how... How do we find those ways again? And there are so many people in this community that are working so hard on mending those relationships and strengthening those relationships. Um, and that's really, really, that's also like a, yeah, a really big lesson for me on how do you do this maybe later on in a different place in the world where the stories might even seem more separated than, than here because everyone is still in love. There's one big thing around this place and that everyone is in love with this place. Um, so how do you do that in places where people are not necessarily that in love with the place and are more on an individual level than, than here even? So yeah. I wanna um, go back to that, uh, oh, uh, let's see. about oh we were saying about uh, the local food like the i think the costa rican the local costa rican diet is not that healthy and so somehow they've gotten into eating processed food but i think there is some benefit like to kind of like some of the expats and foreigners coming in because they're a lot more interested in some of these healthy diets right and so there is something there that perhaps i mean like like can help and 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 it can kind of work somehow there's a collaboration that can happen i think um i don't know do you have some ideas around that that might happen like how can we relocalize you know relocalize the way the Costa Ricans eat so that it's healthier and yeah. maybe what's the collaboration can happen with the expats and the and the locals in that regard well well just like one example i mean most most of the farmers that we work with are are seniors excuse me, senior citizens. It's very similar to the United States where, you know, uh, most farmers are like 60s and over and they don't have succession generations coming in wanting to take over the farm. Um, and so I remember going to lunch um, 
at a couple's house, one of our, our, our farmer providers, I went to lunch at their house and, um, and it was, you know, a basic lunch, rice, beans, a picadillo, and which is a chopped up vegetable. In this case, it was actually um, green papaya and then sauteed greens from the greenhouse. And um, the husband, I noticed, had the same plate as us, which had the greens on it. And, um, and what was interesting is his wife shared with me during lunch that before we started the Caja Verde program, he never, ever ate greens. And now, if he doesn't have greens on his plate, he asks her where the greens are. So it's, it's little shifts like that, right? Where it's like, oh, okay, somebody who never ate greens, but then they started eating it because we were eating them here and they started tasting them and they're like, oh, they're delicious. And then that helps. Or like it is working with another one of our vendors who she makes sweets, she makes delicious sweets, you know, bread, breads, banana bread, mango bread, cookies, whatever, but they're sweets, right? And so Iris has been working with her little by little. Hey, maybe use this kind of sugar. Hey, maybe cut down on the this. Hey, if you do a gluten-free, sugar-free, um, vegan um, alternative, I'll buy it from you just to, you know, if you don't sell it, I'll buy it, right? Because we have to be able to provide these encouragements, right? Because people are doing this to make their, their livelihood. Um, the, and the food thing is interesting too because um, the people here would not be eating the food that they eat if, um, if they knew, if they had the education level to understand what's going on with the saturated fats that they're eating, with the iodized salt, with all of these different things, and had enough money to buy the healthy alternatives. So when people are living right on the edge and you say, oh, why don't you substitute coconut oil for that, you know, canola oil? Well, yeah, that's a really good idea. And of course, like coconut oil is local, but coconut oil costs five times as much as the canola oil, if not more, right? So people are having to make these choices and that's what happens in whether it's a, it could be the global north, global south, it doesn't matter. We have, um, for the most part, people who are economically disenfranchised also, in general, their, their diets are subpar based on the, not necessarily the base ingredients that they have, but the oils, the salts, the sugars, the things that go around that. Well, this is where I think you also have to marry the multi-capital relocalization thing. Because as you're saying, if you just look at that tree, um, and you see that there's the herbs and the smoothie you can make and all this, all that stuff you can actually do for free. And so, and so the, I mean, a large part of the problem with the organic movement in the U.S. is that it is a lot more expensive. And so when they, some of these expats come and tourists, you know, they come here, they, they, they're doing, like they're trying to be regenerative and 
do these cool juice stands and all this, but the prices are way up and it's like too much for the local, you know, campesinos and the, and the, the Costa Ricans. And so they don't get to partake. So what we have to do is not just... So, so I think we need to make aware these expats and the, the people coming in to do the regenerative movement that we also want to shift to a kind of, uh, you know, some of these gift models, some of these commons and like kind of like learn how we, you know, like, like pick the local things, but kind of maybe put into communal part and like some stuff. We've got to create the gift economy in the commons part of the, of the organic food movement too. It can't be just like these, you know, high price, you know, vegan, cool vegan hip restaurants and cool mm. smoothie shops, you know, and that leaves, then that leaves out the, you know, the, the poorer locals here. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right, Alpha. And I think, you know, sharing food is really important, you know, and part of it is just kind of like preparing the local ingredients in different ways, you know, and that are healthier you know, same ingredients, just prepared in a healthier way, maybe not fried, you know, maybe, I remember experimenting with, um, with our kitchen one time, I was like, hey, why don't you use the air fryer instead of, you know, frying your empanadas in, in the oil, you know, um, it didn't last for very long, but you know, it's like just showing up for these things and, Mm and experimenting and some of them stick and some of them don't and celebrating those that do and uh yeah one of the it occurs to me that you could probably tie in because there's a whole land transferal problem here too is that the 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 foreigners are coming in and they're buying up the land sometimes you know for these cool eco village and these regenerative projects but it means that less and less land is and then also more problematic or higher development things but like um, but that's like the the local Ticos, the local Costa Ricans are getting less and less land and they actually now having to work for the foreigners. And so it's really important that we kind of keep the land in the hands of the locals. And so there needs to be some, some process to be worked out. And, um, and, and, and if there is a way to kind of somehow fund some of these local Ticos to, to hold on to their land, and then they could actually produce some of that food and that could be given to the commons if, if like, because it's like being held by the somehow some kind of collaborative model that that we collectively invest in. And yet, but because it's then providing when you come in, you're somehow creating that community that you want, like a lot of these foreigners want um, and the regenerative thing. But you're also transitioning the thing hold to a commons model without also flipping the whole land ownership problem. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for raising that too, um, Alpha, because it's it's a it, it's a huge it is a huge issue. You know, it's kind of um, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but I've been looking at it as kind of like neo-colonialism, you know, it's like, wow, with these best of intentions, you know, and like beautiful ideas and beautiful projects, but we are like taking the, you know, like we, we are taking over places, you know, as foreigners and, um, and not really thinking about, well, where are the people of this place going? Um, and it, I, I also thank you for raising this too because it, for me, it evokes this really kind of 
idea, vision, dream that I've been holding for a bit around um, around what that land succession can look like, where um, where we as people who might want to come in and buy a piece of land and say buy it from a farmer who's needing to sell their land because they really can't work it anymore and they need some money for their retirement and and so they're going to sell their land and then they're going to go live you know in a city somewhere or in the pueblo when actually they really don't want to leave their farm and like what could it look like instead of like buying that land from that farmer and then giving them all that money and then them going and buying a place or renting a place and spending the money what would it look like if like you figured out wow what do you really want and what do you really need and oh you want to stay here on the farm well what if you stayed in this house that you've been living in for the last 20 years and what if you taught us about this land because you've been living with it through every season you know when to plant seeds you know how the water flows you know how the sun moves you know when the wind comes in what months and in what ways and you as somebody who's carrying this embedded embodied knowledge you know it's in the people's blood and then i come in with this knowledge that I'm learning from books somewhere, you know, or I'm learning from a PDC course or whatever. And I come in and I've got the enthusiasm and I've got the the resources and I've got the, the bodily power to do this regenerative work. And then what would it look like for that farmer to be living in their house, watching this regenerative work take place on this land that of course they love, you know, they've, they've given their life to it. And then as they pass on, then the land passes on. But it provides like this beautiful, to me, like I just see the beauty of a transition like that. And there's all sorts of really creative ways I think we can, we can start to work with land, we can start to work with ownership, we can start to work with succession that don't look anything like what we've been trained to, to believe is the way that you work with it. Cool. Thanks. I I actually I just have one contribution to it, and that is, um, yeah, I, I I'm somehow in the quotes today, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like this. It's a very cheesy one, but it's a Disney movie. It's called Pocahontas, and there's this this song of colors of the wind, and um, whenever that's whenever we're talking about what we are doing um, and what we are creating with each other here um, as as you know like the community in the OSA with the connections that we're making we're all committing to walking you know the in in the footsteps of strangers and because we do that, we learn things we otherwise would have never knew. Um, and um, by doing that, and by learning that, you just expand the whole spectrum of colors that bring bring abundance in life, that bring real a real feeling of being alive in our lives. Because we learn how to connect with each other. We 
we are open to seeing what shows up. We're open to the emergence, you know, like we can let go of fear because um, by, by, by learning how to walk the footsteps of strangers, we create a trust that we can always find a solution to whatever challenge we will be invited to, to face with each other as long as we, because we realize that we have that connection as long as we, you know, like collaborate and connect with one another and ask and, and can help ask others for help and know that that help them will be provided um, in one way or the other. Because again, the trust is there that we will always get what we will be provided with what we need. Um, and that's the same with, with this, this thing around the ownership of lands, you know, like it's letting go of that story of ownership. It's maybe not like ownership around about a particular land, but ownership about our lives and taking ownership about the connections that we choose to make with people and the commitments that we choose to make in 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 the greater than our human like to the greater than our human world, right? Um, and yeah, it's that connection and that relationship that every time comes back for me in what's the most important thing that we can have in our lives and that's relationships it's the relationship to where we are it's the relationship with who we are and it's the relationship with ourselves and how we are um yeah committing to nurturing and taking care of that relationship in the best way we can